listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. We've been exploring the appearances of Christ to the early believers during the first 40 days after his resurrection. In the first week of this, we pieced together a timeline out of the four observations of the four Gospels. We figured out Mary Magdalene was the first one to see a resurrected Jesus. On week two, we looked at how the resurrected Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. On week three, we witnessed the resurrected Christ and, and as he reinstated Peter into his call of ministry. And then last week, we witnessed James, the, the brother of Jesus, as he testified to his transformation from skeptic to believer in Jesus being the resurrected Son of God. Now listen, if you can get his own brother to believe it, then you know there's proof, right? If you can get the, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic during his earthly ministry, if you can get him to buy into this, there, there's proof there. Today, we're going to end this series with the final eyewitness account of Jesus after the resurrection and right before his ascension to heaven, his ascension to the Father, okay? Um, this past Thursday was Ascension Day. I know it's not a day that, that most of us would, would put on our calendars and mark. Um, it's the 40th day after Easter. Uh, and let me say this about <clears throat> the religious holidays. We don't know exactly when these days were. We don't know exactly when the birth of Christ was. As a matter of fact, most evidence points to, to Christ actually being born in the spring. And what's interesting to me, and, and I don't have time to get into this, but what's interesting is the evidence points to the fact that Christ may have been crucified on his birthday. The way the heavens and the stars lined up, it's very possible that, that he actually was, was crucified on his birthday and, and why wouldn't he be? I mean, it's just everything with him is just kind of perfect the way that it works. Um, but this past Thursday was Ascension Day, the 40th day after Easter, a day that, that Christians celebrate the ascension of Christ from earth to heaven. And, and if you missed it, if you, you know, didn't have it on your calendar and you missed it, you're, you're not alone. Not, it's not nearly as acknowledged and celebrated as Christmas and Easter, but it, I, I, I submit to you that it's as vitally important as, as Christmas and Easter, especially to the Christian faith. And the reason why the ascension is so important is because Christ ascended to heaven. And now we as believers, we have confidence that Christ is, is now there interceding for us, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and that he is interceding for us. He, he's praying on our behalf until the day of his return. And this is important. How many of you are looking forward to the return of Christ? Amen. I'm just looking forward to it. For the rest of you that didn't clap, <laughs> Maybe we need to have an altar call right now. How many of you are looking forward to the return of Christ? Amen? That's better. That's better. We're going to jump right into it today. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read a few verses, uh, and, and then I'm going to pause. Just leave your Bibles open, if you will. Luke chapter 24. Um, we'll be starting and stopping a few times here. Luke 24, verse 46. It says, and he said, he is Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. I hope that's not the first time you've said his name today, because that needs to be one of the first names you say when you wake up. And Jesus, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Let's stop there just for a moment. Beginning in Jerusalem. That's their Newberry. Okay. Beginning in, in Jerusalem. It's going to spread from there. Newberry is our Jerusalem. That's why it's important for the gospel to start here with us in our movement. It starts here, and it is spreading out. 
And so he said it was written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. So there's the message. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And then Jesus says these words, you are witnesses of all these things. You are witnesses of all these things. Church, being called upon to be a witness comes with a fair amount of responsibility. At most marriages that I perform, most wedding ceremonies that I perform, um, before I sign the marriage license, I usually get the best man and the maid of honor to join me, and I will have them sign as witnesses. I believe it's line 41 and 42 on the, on the marriage license application or on the marriage license form, and, and, and I'll have them sign, the best man and the maid of honor. Um, and, and when they sign that, what they're doing is they're testifying to the fact that they were there at the ceremony, that they actually watched it transpire, and they are witnesses to that, that it actually happened, and they, they can testify to that. A witness to a crime will be asked to give a statement to law enforcement as a witness to what has transpired. Some people who are called upon as witnesses in the court of law, uh, they can attest for the whereabouts or the actions of an individual. And so they, 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 they call them in. They're an, they're an alibi witness. And so they, they can say, yes, they were with me, or yes, I saw them do this. And, and we all know that witnesses can make or break the case. Witnesses can make or break the case. But witnesses are useless if they keep what they know to themselves. If they know something to be true and they're called upon to testify to that, and yet they don't share that truth, they are useless to the case. The whole point of being a witness is to testify as to what you have seen or to what you have heard. And Jesus explained to these early believers that they were witnesses to his suffering, to his death, and to his resurrection. He, he informed them of that. He said, listen, you have seen this. Not everybody has seen this. Not everybody has witnessed this. He said, but you have. You, you have witnessed my resurrection or, 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 or my suffering. You have witnessed my death and you have witnessed my resurrection. And, and, and so he then explains, he goes on to explain that this message would take forgiveness to the nations for all who hear it and all who repent. And he calls them witnesses. You are witnesses to this. Their job is to testify of what they have seen and what they have heard. But there's a problem. There's a serious problem. It's a problem that none of us in the room can relate to. Because in that day and age, telling others what they have seen, what they have witnessed, could cost them their lives. I, I, I don't think it's by chance that, that this is Memorial Day weekend and I think it's important for us to point out that we live in such a blessed nation. I know we've got some problems, and I know sometimes we think it's going to hell in a handbasket. But, man, we live in such a great nation. The freedom to gather here today in the name of Jesus Christ and to worship him, to be able to sing hallelujah to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. This is such a privilege that we have, church. This is a great opportunity, and we should be thankful for this because not the whole world has this opportunity. Amen? There are men and women who, who gave their lives for us to have this freedom, and I don't take that lightly. We live in a great nation. Amen? But telling others what they saw in first century Palestine, it, it, it could cost them their lives. Think about it. Just 40 days earlier, Jesus was tried as a criminal and unjustly beaten and crucified unto death. 
And you have to put yourself in, in the shoes of the early believers because they probably said to themselves, if they will do that to a man that knew no sin, what will they do to me? If, if I show my support, if I witness on his behalf and they killed him, what will they do to me? I mean, Jesus was a good man. He, he was improving the quality of life with almost everyone that he came in contact with. If they would allow him to, Jesus was improving their quality of life. And if they will crucify him, what will they do to me if I testify of what I know? And anyone in their right mind would keep this information to themselves because it takes someone with a certain amount of courage or a certain amount of crazy to tell others of a resurrected Jesus. And sometimes it takes a little of both. And Jesus had just the answer. Let's continue reading in verse 49. Luke 24 and 49. And now I will send the Holy Spirit. Here's his answer for that. If you don't have the courage, here's your courage. Now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany. And lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them... He left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. That is so important. They were praising God. They spent all their time in the temple praising God. There's a difference between praise and worship. I know that some of you define praise as the fast songs that we sing when we come to church. And yet others will define worship as the slow songs that we sing when we come to church. I'll tell you this, church. The tempo of the song has absolutely nothing to do with whether it's classified as praise or worship. And there is a difference between the two. I've taught this before, but, 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 but let me kind of repeat this just for a moment. Because I think this is so important. Because the truth is that a fast song can be either praise or worship. A slow song can be either praise or worship. Just like a love song can be fast or slow. It has more to do with the content of it. Because worship, and, and usually in, in the past when I've taught this, I'm, I'm usually getting us to a place of worship. Because worship is intimate. Worship is a face-to-face -face encounter with the Almighty. It's when you get to that place where you have pressed through and you are in the Holy of Holies and you are standing before the presence of God and all you can do is sing hallelujah because there's no other words that are sufficient enough. That's, that's what worship is. Worship is intimate. It's a face-to-face -face encounter. And it's me telling God, how great he is. That's what worship is. Praise is me telling others how great God is. And both are important and both are needed and both should be active in a believer's life. But don't get the two confused. You, you know, I can tell my wife, I can tell Mandy how great her spaghetti is. I can look at her and say, babe, your spaghetti excels all other spaghettis. There's no other spaghetti on this planet, woman, that, that compares to your spaghetti. You see, that's worship. That's worship. But I can go over here and I can say, BJ, let me tell you something about my wife's spaghetti. It's better than your wife's spaghetti all day long. It's, I'm glad you're shaking your head, but, but you're wrong. You're wrong. She's not even here to witness it. You can agree with me. My wife's spaghetti is the best. You see, that's praise. She's not here to witness it, but I'm telling him. I'm praising her to him. I'm, I'm telling of her greatness. 
I, I can go to, to other people and I can tell them how beautiful my wife is. That's praise. I'm telling them, my wife is a beautiful woman. But when I look at her and I say, you're the most beautiful woman in this church, I just took it from praise to worship. I can go around and I can tell everyone, this band that you hear every Sunday morning, they are fantastic. They're one of the best praise bands on this planet. We, we label it praise. And, and, and when I'm telling you, that's exactly what it is. I, I'm praising them. Now listen, before it's misconstrued, I'm using this word. I do not worship this band. I want you to understand that. They lead us in worship. But, but if I look at them and I say, you are the best band. You guys, you're, you're fantastic. Your talent is, is unbelievable. Then I am expressing, I am worshiping them. Again, I'm not worshiping them, but, but you, get, you get the gist of it. And in a believer's life, you've got to have both. You've got to have both praise where you're expressing it to others how great God is. And you've got to have worship where you're expressing to God how great God is. I, I know that, 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 that there are times when... when when you want to enter into the presence of Lord and you just can't seem to get there in church, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. We go through seasons in life but, but, but where, where the worship is just not easy. But let me tell you, you should never stop praising. Praising should just be what we do because praising will get you into the presence of God faster. The believers in the last chapter of the book of Luke they were called to be witnesses and they were testifying to others about how great their God was. This was praise. They were praising to others. Luke 24 and 53, and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. What they were doing is they were telling everyone, Jesus, God had just ascended and now they go to the temple and they're telling everyone. It's, it's in conversation. It's in the scriptures they quote. It, it, it's in the songs that they sing. They're just singing to everyone else about how great their God was. They they were praising God. And with that sentence, and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God, with that sentence, we have the end of the first book of Luke. Now, I know what you're, you're thinking. Well, is there a second Luke? This is the first book that, that Luke wrote, and yes, there is another. And what you have to understand is that Luke was the only Gentile. He was a non-Jew. He's the only Gentile writer, author of the Bible. Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul. And although Luke was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, he had access to those who had witnessed the events firsthand. And that was important to Luke. He wanted to make sure that he, he charted everything. He wanted to make sure that he wrote down all of the evidence that, were, that was being shared with him. Luke wrote about his findings. Unlike the Gospels of Mark and John, Luke writes with an advanced level of Greek. If you were to read the book of Luke in, in, in the original Greek, it's different than, than, than Mark and John. And, and, and he, he, he has a way of writing and uses words that only an educated man could use because Luke was a physician. We know this from Scripture. We know that he was a doctor. He was Dr. Luke, an educated man. And because he was an educated man, Luke knew to ask all the right questions. Because when your mind thinks that way, you know what to ask. You know what you're looking for. And you know how to get to the bottom of something. And so Luke was the right man. He, he needed to get to the bottom of what really happened. And he knew the questions to ask. And so in his writings, Luke tends to give us more detail to, to some of the medical matters when he writes about some of the miracles of Christ. That's why he points out to us that, that, that Peter's mother-in-law 
was running a high temperature. She had a high fever that Jesus healed her of. That was important to Luke because Luke was a doctor. That was one of the symptoms. And so he wanted to make sure that we understood that she had a a high fever. In Luke chapter 14, he tells us that there was a man that was swollen with fluid. He had fluid retaining on his body. And so that was important to Luke to let us know that. But as calculated and as specific as Luke was in the details, you have to understand that there was a specific purpose as to why Luke was writing this gospel. I thank God that it's for all of us to read, but there was a specific person that he was trying to reach with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. The purpose of Luke writing this book was to reach a man by the name of Theophilus. And he wanted to make sure that Theophilus had the truth of Jesus Christ. We find this in the first chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. I know that we love the book of Luke. I know that we do. But what you have to understand is that he had an audience of one man that he was writing this for. And we don't know much about Theophilus. We don't understand exactly who he is because the scriptures do not make us privy to this. But but some people believe that Theophilus was a wealthy and influential man. That, that Paul met when he was in Antioch. If you'll remember, Paul planted a church in Antioch and it became a, a ministry center. And, and some people believe that Theophilus was a faithful supporter of Paul and Luke as they went on their missionary journey. Some people believe that Theophilus was the high priest of Jerusalem from 37 to 41 AD because there was a, a high priest in Jerusalem of the same name. Yet others lay claim that Theophilus was a Roman lawyer defending the Apostle Paul in his trial in Rome. If that is the case, if that's the case, then Luke was most likely writing a defense of Christianity on Paul's behalf, similar to what we would call a legal briefing. And I tend to agree with this. Just from the way that that he writes, most honorable Theophilus is what he says. But here's what happens. As the facts unfold... Luke completes his first book, his first letter to Theophilus. He, he obviously puts a stamp on it, sends it in the mail, gets it into his hand some way, somehow. And then it's, <clears throat> as he continues to explore, he realizes that one document is not near enough. And so Luke begins to write. There's more to the story. And Luke wanted to make sure that Theophilus had all the right information. Like a great sequel, Luke picks up writing the book of Acts. That's right. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he picks it up right where the book of Luke left off. You know, one of my favorite opening scenes to a sequel is the beginning of Back to the Future Part 2. I don't know how many Back to the Future fans we have in the room. Anyone? they're always like the first ones to raise their hand. Like when I said back to the future, they were ready to raise their hand. They were ready. Yeah. I I never realized this. And and I think it happened back during the stay at home order when COVID first hit uh, and and I was at home and I was watching TV and, and some like back to the future marathon came on TV or something. And I remember I was watching Back to the Future 1, and as soon as it ended, I mean, you know how they do it now? The credits were not even finished. They just moved the credits to the bottom of the screen and the next movie starting. And, and Back to the Future Part 2 came on. And so I just kind of let it roll. I was just like, yeah, I just finished that one. Let's just let the story keep on going. And, um, 
Instead of picking it up where they left off, they actually went back and they refilmed the opening scene, or the closing scene, rather, from part one. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but it's the closing scene from part one, and it's nearly identical. You would have thought that it's the exact same scene except for one major change. But, but if you remember this scene, Marty walks into the garage, and there is his, his brand-new Toyota truck. And for all of us guys in the room, those Toyotas, th- those were the trucks. That's what we wanted. It four-wheel drive, it thing set up nice. We wanted that. In this scene, he turns around, and, and he looks, and his girlfriend, Jennifer Parker, his girlfriend throughout the whole first movie, Jennifer Parker is standing there in the garage, and as they're talking, Doc comes flying up in the DeLorean into the driveway, knocks over the trash cans. He jumps out, and he's he's frantic, and he's like, Marty, you've got to go with me. He says, where are we going, Doc? And he says, we've got to go back to the future. And he says, well, my girlfriend's here. And he says, well, bring her with you. They get into the DeLorean. They back out into the road. Marty says, "Uh, Doc, we don't have enough room to get up to 88 miles per hour. I said 88 feet in the first service, and all the, the nerds and geeks in the room rebuked me after service, you, you bunch of morons. But how's that? Teach you to correct me. 88 miles per hour. We don't have enough room to get up to 88 miles per hour. And he says, where we're going, we don't need roads. And the DeLorean lifts up, and now we see the tires turn up underneath it. It's a new and improved DeLorean. And it takes off, and they sail off into the future. With, with one major difference. The scene is almost identical, except for the girlfriend, Jennifer Parker. For some reason, she couldn't be in the second movie. And, and they replaced Claudia Wells with an up-and-coming actress by the name of Elizabeth Shue. Now, Luke replays the last scene of the book of Luke as the first scene of the book of Acts. It is the same instance, but this time... Luke includes more details of what happened at the ascension of Christ. I can only imagine after he finished his first letter to Theophilus that he, he, he just couldn't get enough. And he said, I, I need to know more. I want to know more. Keep telling me more about this ascension. Tell me more about what happened. And so we pick it up there. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions about the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and time, and they are not for you to know. Let me pause there just for a moment. This has nothing to do with what I'm teaching today, but I think this is important. If someone ever tells you that they've got it figured out, that they know when Christ is coming back, run, get away from them. Jesus himself said it's not for you to know. So, like, anybody knows we're closer today than we were yesterday. That's common sense. We know that we are are closer to the coming of Christ than we were yesterday. And and yesterday was closer than it was the day before. But, But everyone keeps trying to figure out when Christ is coming back. Jesus just told us. 
The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Look at somebody next to you and say, it's not for you to know. Just tell them. You know what that tells me? You've got to figure out how to live in the here and now and quit worrying about the then and there. Let's keep moving. I'm going to get on a soapbox, and you don't want me there. Verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I can almost hear the prosecuting attorney now. So you're telling me that there were men and women who were scared to even say that they were associated with him while he was on trial that are now willing to give their lives for the same man? The skepticism involved with that, that, that when he was alive, they, they, they wouldn't even say that they were part of, 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 of his group, but, but now you're telling me the same men and women are willing to die for him? What could have possibly made them so bold? And we find that answer in Acts 1 and 8, where Jesus says, but you will receive power. Say power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here's the reason why you will be, be, be made powerful. This is the reason why the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Here it is. And you will be my witnesses. Church, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are witnesses. We have to tell of what we know. But too many times the church is timid. We're, we're scared. We're, we're, we, we don't want to say it because we're worried about what they're going to think. And Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Starting off in Newberry. Then Alachua County. And then Florida, and then the U.S., and then even around the world. And here's what's happening in churches right now. We're so bold to give to missions, and we should. We, we need to give to missions because we want the gospel to spread around the world. But we are not willing to have that face-to-face -face intimate conversation with someone who sleeps in the same bed with us. Or, or, or maybe we sit across the dinner table from, or they sit in the next cubicle because we are too timid. We're just scared to have that conversation about eternity. And, and we've lost the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is the power for salvation. He said wherever this is shared... That is what is going to bring salvation to them if they repent. And so somebody's got to go and tell them. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was the difference maker. The Holy Spirit empowered the early church and gave them the courage and even a little crazy uh, to become these bold witnesses for Jesus. And even though this series ends today, I want you to know we will continue with the timeline next week on Pentecost Sunday. And don't worry, I don't want anyone to get scared and think, man, it's going to be weird. No, it's just going to be scriptural. It's going to be biblical. But before I was in full-time ministry, I worked in the sales department of a body parts supplier. We sold like arms and legs and occasional eyeball or ear. I'm just kidding. It was collision parts. We sold hoods, fenders, and bumpers. Occasional light assembly, you know. That's the stuff that, that we sold. And I, I was really young working in the company, and uh, eventually I worked my way up to a manager. But, but I, I was in the sales department when I first started. And in between customers calling in and, and giving us orders, body shops and, and suppliers calling in and giving us orders for us to ship out, 
we were supposed to make cold calls. We were supposed to call potential new customers and, 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 and try and gain their business. And so I, I took it very serious. I did. Um, I, I don't want to say I was good at it, but I was. And, um, and I would keep track of any and all information that they would give me. If they told me, you know, I, I don't have time to talk today. My, my son Johnny's got a baseball game. I would call them back the next day and I would say, hey, did Johnny's team win? I mean, I, that was the guy that I was. I was kind of like, you know, Michael Scott Paper Company trying to take the business from <laughs> Dunder Mifflin. I, I was that guy, man. I kept it. I kept all, you know, if, if Aunt Sally's having bunion surgery the next week, I'm going to find out how her bunion surgery went, you know. Anything to get their business. That's what I wanted. But we had this one salesman by the name of Mike. And Mike is his real name. I'm not changing the name to protect the innocent because he wasn't innocent. Mike... Mike, I, I, he, he, he was very comfortable with the amount of money that he made and the customer base that he had. Mike was not working hard to, to increase the company's business. He wasn't cold calling. He wasn't, and, and here's what Mike started doing. When the manager and the owner of the company, when they were out of the office, Mike would go to sleep in his, at his desk. And the rest of us would answer the calls, and we would even take orders from his customers, and he would get the credit for it. And he would never cold call anyone and build new, new business for the, for the company. Until that one day, the owner, everyone thought he was out of the country. And he walked into the sales department. And this guy, he never just walked in anywhere. He barged in whenever he walked in. He was always an intense person. And he walked in. Mike's is the first desk that he would see. He walked in. He, needless to say, Mike was gone. Mike, see ya. Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him, they're squinting their eyes, they're holding their, their, their hands, they, they're, they're straining to see him. They strained to see him rising into heaven. Two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. I want to ask you the same question. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? This is a question that, that needs to haunt the Christian church. Why do we stand here staring into heaven? Listen, I've been ridiculed for many things over the past few years, but, but one of the things that some people have, have said about me is that they, they don't believe that I preach on the end times enough. So much so that they, they feel the need to con continue to send me books in the mail on the topic even after they leave our church, which... It's crazy to me. Yeah, I'm going to add that to my reading list, the pastor said sarcastically. Do me a favor. If you ever leave our church, don't send me a book to read, okay? okay. Not unless you, you leave the right way, okay? It, it, it's, just, it's just a slap in the face. We're going to keep moving, okay? I want to stay there, but I'm not going to. It's not that I avoid the topic, Okay? The end times, it's fascinating to me. You need to understand that. My wife will tell you, early in my ministry, I have read some of the greats. 
And they would explain a certain scripture and how, it, how it's connected to the end times. And, and, and I would read it and I would buy all in. And I was like, oh, that's it. That makes sense. Yeah, Jesus is coming back in 2012. I know he's going to be here. Look at the Mayan calendar. It's going to happen, you know. And, and so you just buy into it. And, and then someone else, some other man of God, prophet of the, of the word, whoever, they take the same exact scripture and they give a completely different interpretation of it. And I would read that and I'd be like, oh, well, that's it. Praise the Lord. And then I finally just got to the place where I realized Jesus said, none of us are going to know the day or the hour. We're not going to know it. It's not that it's not important. And it's not that I'm, I'm not longing for it. Because church, I promise you, I am longing for the return of our Lord. It's the reason why salvation is so important to me. Because I don't want to leave anybody behind. I said it in the beginning days of DCC. I say it every year. I'll continue to say it. But DCC is a roadblock on the way to hell. If they want to get there, they're going to have to go around us to get there. Because I'm going to do everything within my ability. I am going to preach the gospel. And, and most sun Sundays, you know that somewhere in there, I'm going to find my way to a salvation call because it's that important because eternity hangs in the balance. I'm looking forward to the coming of the Lord. I am. I, I, I'm ready to see, even more so with the shape that this old world is in, church, and the events of this past week and another school shooting. I'm ready for his return. I haven't always felt that way. I promise you, I haven't always felt that way. Listen, when I got married, I was a 20-year-old virgin. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was. I was a 20-year-old virgin when I got married. My prayers leading up to August 12, 1995 was, Lord, please don't come back. Please don't come back. Please, you come back the day after I get married. But, Lord, I want to get married. <laughs> then our prayers became, we just want to have children. We just want to have children. Then we had children. I'm like, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, come. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Come now, Lord, now. And then the cycle continues because you know what happens. Your children want to get married and your children want to have children. And then, and then you're like, you get close to having grandbabies like, like we are. And I'm like, okay, Lord, you can hold off just a little bit. But I can tell you events like this past week, it just makes me want to say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come now. Come now. And over the last few years, I've lost some very important people in my life. They've, they've died. They've, they've transitioned. They've gone to Beulah land. They've gone to heaven. They're there. And it, and it makes me, it makes me long to be there with them. Heaven is sounding sweeter all the time. And I want to be there. I want to experience that. But church, we've got to be careful. Because what happens, the older you get in your Christianity... You will become so tunnel focused on then and there. And I believe we're supposed to look forward to it. But we will become so tunnel focused on then and there that we forget about the here and now. Why do you stand here staring into heaven? There's a mandate on your life. Christ told you to go and be witnesses. Go and praise him throughout humanity. Go share of his goodness and what he's done for you because your story might be the very one that leads them to a relationship with Christ. 
What Christ has done in you can be the inspiration that they need to turn their life over to him. So why do you stand here dumbfounded? Can you imagine? He, he, just, he just levitated. He, he, he just ascended. Why do you stand here staring into heaven? That same Jesus, he's going to come again in like manner. The same way that you saw him ascend, he will come back. But until then, you've got some work to do. Don't get so stuck in your salvation that you don't see that others need to be saved. Our responsibility as witnesses is to populate heaven, church. Don't get, get, don't get so caught up in waiting that you forget to witness. Just, just don't. I think what we have to remember is that we've got to work like the boss is coming back. We can't get comfortable. We can't not work. We can't not praise and be a witness to what he has done. It, it, it's the mandate that's on our life. We must do this. And church, we have to work like the boss is coming back because guess what? He is. And, and when he comes back, I hope he finds me leading someone to Christ. But I hope it's right after we say amen so that they're going to. I'm serious. I hope and I pray that when Christ steps out of glory to call his church home, I hope that I'm found spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and being a witness for him. Because that's what he's called me to do. That's what he's called you to do. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.